You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. to see you guys tonight. Thank you for coming and for joining us. If this is your first time here, I want to ask if you fill out the connection card right by your seat or drop it off at the offering plate as you exit and fill it out as you feel comfortable. But I want to read a portion of the scripture found in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And it's talking about how the Assyrians were ready to battle with the Israelites. In verse 6, it says, He appointed military officers over the people and assemble them before him in the square of the city gate. Then Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, for there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. I hope the verse encouraged your heart tonight, especially the part that says, for there is a power far greater on our side. And I believe we do have the same power far greater on our side tonight. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come in your presence. Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this service. We pray that you would be exalted. Father, it's your name that we want to lift up. It's your name that we want to worship. And Lord, as everyone else is in one heart, unified with one desire, and that's to make you great, Lord, to lift you up above the problems and cares of our life, Lord, to lift you up above any false idols, anything we might exalt above you, Father. We, we want to put you first place in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you be glorified in all that's said and done. May your Holy Spirit have free reign in this place. May it be able to do a work as the word is open, and may our hearts be sensitive and pliable to the work that your Holy Spirit wants to do in us. Would you change us to be more like you? Change us into your image, Father. May we be more like you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. God bless you and welcome. I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here. I pray that you had a wonderful week, and I'm just excited each and every week that we get to be together in this place. And if you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 8. We're going to be in Acts, chapter number 8. I'm glad that you are here. And if you did not receive a notebook, you want to take notes, I would encourage you. There is a free journal that you can have on your way out. Please grab one of those, because I really want to see people digging into God's Word, but not just reading God's word, but also taking notes and uh, journaling what God is speaking to you about. Because during these difficult days, I think it's so important because many times this has humbled many of us. For many of us, this has brought us to a point where we're now uh, at a crossroads where we either have to lean more into God and his word and prayer, or we know 
that we're going to end up being in a situation where we're so far from God. So we're, we're humbled by maybe a job loss. We're humbled by maybe the uh, health crisis. We're, we're humbled by maybe strained relationships. And this is a moment where we can draw close to God. And I believe that God, through his word, is going to say things to us. And it could be through a sermon. It could be through your own devotional time in God's word where you're going to want to take notes. You're going to want to write down what God is speaking to you about. And there'll be another season where you're going to be able to look back on this time and say, God was good. He was faithful back in that season, and I even kept a record of it. I even, I even remember the specific moments, the specific verses that God wrote and spoke to me. And this week, as I was going through the book of Hebrews in my own time with God, I came across Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse number 10. And the verse says, and after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And it's speaking about Abraham. And after Abraham patiently endured, he received the promise. He was given a son by the name of Isaac. The person that gave me that verse was a person that uh, I eventually married because her dad wouldn't let me date her, wouldn't let me marry her. And so she gave me a great verse. After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. I was like, uh, that's, that's a perversion of scripture, but we'll take it. No, just kidding. And uh, so it was just moments like that. You look back on and you think, wow, God was good in a time where I thought this was never going to happen, but God was faithful. So I want to encourage you to take notes. Note takers are history makers. So we want to make it easy for you to take notes and to follow along as we continue to just march through the book of Acts. And I can't think of a better book right now than everything that's going on in our country, everything that's going on in our world. Because many times as I interact with Christians, I find that our worldview is not a biblical or scriptural worldview. It's a worldview that we've co-opted or we've adopted or it's a worldview that we've uh, been in, somebody's imposed it on us. And many times I'll have conversations with people and I'll ask them, what is God saying to you about that? I spoke with the pastor this week, and I said, well, how much prayer and how much time have you spent seeking God on this issue? And he just stared at me like that was a foreign concept, to pray and to seek the Lord before you do something. Because too often, I'm afraid we do a lot of what we do out of expediency. You say, what do you mean expediency? Whatever's convenient. We live by what's convenient. This decision feels good. And I love how we sang about and worshiped the fact that we're not going to follow feelings because many times our feelings can easily lead us astray. Never go to the grocery store when you're hungry. Never do it. Never do it. Because you buy a bunch of things you know you shouldn't eat and you buy a bunch of stuff your uh, spouse specifically doesn't want you to buy. And I think the same thing happens when we get out into the place that's outside of a spiritual covering, outside of uh, good, healthy influences. All of a sudden, we'll do things we normally wouldn't do. Why? And it comes back to this thought of where is our worldview coming from, especially today? Because we live in a culture and a worldview that uh, it's so important that as Christians, we know what God's word says. Uh, one person we asked, uh, what do you believe? And they say, I believe what my church believes. Well, what does your church believe? My church believes what I believe. Okay, well, what do you and your church believe? Oh, we both believe the same thing. Do you see how it just goes around and around and around? What do you actually believe? You can't pin people down because they don't want to be pigeonholed nowadays. Because the reality is people are, are really trying to be gracious. People aren't trying to be insincere. They don't want to offend you. And so now we have this culture where nobody will actually say anything lest they offend you. And they're trying to be polite. But yet as Christians, uh, we're going to see that we have a responsibility. Each and every one of us have a responsibility. And I think too often we look at uh, being a Christian as more of a right 
than a responsibility. Oh, look at all these blessings and promises and privileges that I have because I'm a child of God. And that is correct. But each one of us need to understand there is a responsibility that's placed upon us. And we understand responsibility. If you're married, you understand you have some responsibilities in the marriage vows. Uh, If you are employed, you have a responsibility to your employer. If you um, are uh, any situation, if you're a citizen of the United States, you have a responsibility to vote. You have a responsibility to obey laws. We, We understand responsibility. If you're a student, you have a responsibility to the teacher. If you're a teacher, you have a responsibility to the student. So we, responsibility not new, but yet I'm overwhelmed by the sense that many Christians do not understand their responsibility as a child of God. Because too often we're just hearing about all the passages that just claim your promises. And, and, and it's, it's one thing to, to, to call out the promises of God. It's another thing to claim them. And man, just, just go and claim those promises. But we understand that as Christians, we have a deep responsibility. And I think too often we've neglected our responsibility. You see, go to the book of Matthew. We're not going to go there this evening. In Matthew chapter number five, you can see that the church Christians are called to be salt of the earth. We're supposed to be the light of the world. You know, salt purifies, doesn't it? You can put salt into something. If you have a sore throat, you can gargle with salt water and it it purifies. Uh, Salt doesn't just purify, salt preserves. The Bible tells us that this world is corrupt what is corruption? Corruption is uh, uh, something that's rotting. It's, it's corruption. So what the church is supposed to be, we're supposed to be the preservative. That means we're preserving something. We're supposed to be pushing back against corruption. But yet, where is the church speaking out on corruption? We don't see it. You see, the church, it purifies. And some people, they don't like that, do they? They like that, the fact that a church and a Christian balances his speech with grace and truth. It seems today we want to be all grace and no truth, but yet we need to still stand for the truth. We speak the truth in love. I say it like this. Say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean. But yet too often as Christians, we say nothing at all. We're silent when we have a responsibility. And so we understand that salt purifies, salt preserves, but also salt penetrates. You ever over-salted something? Uh, I remember some days where I would, you know, try to bake something, and then you taste the cookies, you're like, whew, a little bit too much salt there. Okay, that just, it's amazing how salt just uh, penetrates something. You can over-salt something. And some of you love your food really salty. I tried to develop a habit a long time ago not to reach for the salt. Whether the food needed salt or it didn't need salt, I was like, you know what, I just don't want to go down that, that path, you know? But that's what salt does. And That's what the church Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to be like that salt. But yet, many of us don't understand that we have a responsibility. We're to focus on our rights. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter number 8, and we're going to see that we have a responsibility. Even in light of current circumstances, does not negate our responsibility. You see, if the church does not shine the light, there is no other source of light to which the world can turn or look towards. Do you understand that? If the church does not shine the light, there is no other source that the world can turn to for light. It's looking for a source of light. It's looking for a source of truth, and you can't find it. 
Because you can see on both sides, there's confusion. On both sides, there's misdirection. On both sides, it seems like nobody knows what's going on. On both sides, it seems like there's mutual distrust. There is no unity. And so we need to come back to the thought that, wait a minute, as Christians, we have a responsibility to shine the light on a sin-sick world, to push back on the corruption that we see. But yet, many Christians just think, no, it's my job to, we used to sing the old hymn, hold the fort for I am coming. Just kind of hunker down and just got to ride this thing out. Instead of understanding that, no, I have a responsibility and I need to act on this responsibility. So you say, what is my responsibility? How do I move on this responsibility? And let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter number eight, verse number one. Here's what the word of God says. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's great persecution. You say, what is great persecution? It's going to go into detail. Verse number two. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. This means to destroy it, entering into every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Later on in Paul's testimony, he'll talk about how he executed many of them. So there's great persecution. Here's Saul going into every house where he knows that there's a Christian, and he's putting them into prison, so there's great persecution. So verse number four, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, Philip was mentioned in Acts chapter number six, among the seven of those good men, godly men, gifted men. This is Philip. He went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And I love verse number eight. It says, and there was great joy in that city. How can a passage start off so different? Verse number one, we see that there's great persecution Verse number eight, you can see that there's great joy. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? The fact that the church could be going through its most darkest hour to date, because this is a young church, not even, not even a, a year old, very young church. And all of a sudden, they're suffering great persecution. One of their favorite leaders has been stoned, and he's now dead and gone. So the Christians are now fleeing Jerusalem. The apostles are going to stay with the ones that are going to remain, and they're going to stay there, but the rest of the church is just fleeing for safety. They're fleeing, but the church ends in verse number 8, and they're experiencing great joy. I don't know what you're going through right now, but even in the midst of what we see, great persecution, in the midst of great lamentation, you can see that there can also be great joy. How is that possible? There is joy in serving Jesus. There is joy in fulfilling our responsibility as Christians. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. The church, of, first of all, was scattered. We see that they were scattered. Why? Because a man by the name of Saul was going everywhere, and he was giving a command to go into every house and hailing Christians, being imprisoning them. Anybody who was known to be a Christian, he was going to your house, knocking on the door, kicking the door in, and taking the husband and the wife and dragging them to prison, executing some, convicting many. 
And so this persecution was just not a, a one neighborhood. It was taking the city of Jerusalem by storm. So everybody's fleeing to surrounding areas to escape the persecution. They want to get away from it. And we would think that this is a terrible thing. We would think that this scattering is something that we would just hate to go through. And maybe you feel in your life that there are some situations right now where you just feel like God has just scattered your life to the four corners of the earth. Where you just feel like, well, my job went that way, my health went that way, my family went that way, and my passion for God went that way. And I'm just kind of sitting here just feeling just scattered. I'm feeling just a certain way where I don't, I don't have my sense of equilibrium. I don't know what to do in this situation. I just, I just feel in this funk. I just feel stuck. I feel like I'm in a rut. Many people, because of the shelter in place, have not felt like themselves. They've been isolated. They've been cut off. They've not been able to interact with their fellowship, their, with their life group, and with their Christian friends. Or maybe they had a death in the family, and they couldn't even properly mourn the death. Or maybe they went through a financial loss. Or maybe they've gone through a job loss. And all of a sudden, they just feel scattered. And you say, what do we do in a situation like this, where there's this persecution and I love what their reaction, even though they were scattered, this scattered, God can turn our trials into the triumphs because in verse number four, it says they went everywhere. They didn't just go one place. It says these Christians went everywhere and they did something very specific. Would you notice what they did? It says, and they preached the word. Christians went everywhere preaching the word. You say, well, that's, that's good for them, Pastor. I'm sure that they were seminary trained. I'm sure they had some Bible college. I'm sure that they had gone to a good Christian college. And I'm sure that they had taken a homiletics class on how to, how to write a sermon. I'm sure that they were really equipped. No, you didn't catch it. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So who are these people that are preaching the gospel everywhere? This is the average Joes. This is the average person. This is the everyday uh, stay-at-home mom. This is the everyday uh, stay-at-home person. This is the student. This is the college student. This is the factory worker. This is the person that has no job. This is the person that's gainfully employed. And this is the person that owns a business. This is the person that's been chased out of Jerusalem, is now going everywhere. But they understood that no matter where I go, I take Jesus with me. I don't leave Jesus and some of us think that, you know what, when I, when I leave the church, Jesus stays there. We don't understand when we leave Jerusalem, Jesus goes with us. Everywhere you go, everything you say, everything you post, everything you like, everything you comment on, everything you say reflects your creator. So what is it reflecting? You see, as Christians, we need to understand that we have a responsibility because everywhere we go, people should know that we are Christians and we identify as such. And they're looking to us because we're in a season. The church at large has been scattered. Many have gone online. Some have sheltered in place. I, every week I get to talk to pastors and you pray for them. Why? Because many of their churches are struggling and it's desperate. It's dire. They're financially, they can't stay open or they might never reopen when shelter in place is over. And they're not sure what to do. Their membership is fleeing them. You're seeing the church people are just leaving. You're seeing church online. And we should stop calling it church online. That is not church online. That's not the gathering. That is a good teaching, but it's not a church service, okay? And, and our church will be moving away from that with an in-person gathering. I just want to let you know, because there is something about the gathering, and I know that there's a lot of 
people would say, Pastor, but you don't understand the safety. Well, excuse me, if the Supreme Court will open casinos and allow as many people that want to go gamble and spend their hard-earned money, but yet limit the church to 50, excuse me, it's safe enough to gather the church. And if you say, no, 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 there's a global pandemic, Pastor, you don't understand. There's a lot of people dying, and it's tragic. There are a lot of people dying. But don't tell me that to the country that will abort one million babies each and every year. More people die in an abortion clinic than will die from COVID-19. You say, well, that's, that's just one statistic. No, no, no. How many, think, how many do you know are human trafficked each year in the United States? Over 200,000 children are human trafficked in the United States alone. That's more people that are human trafficked than will die this year from COVID-19. Where is the outcry on human trafficking? Where is the outcry on abortion, which far surpassed that? And who is the one person speaking out about these things, the one organization that's speaking out? The church. And what has the church been told to do? Be quiet. The church has a responsibility to speak up. The church has a responsibility to speak up for the widows and the orphans. We've got a responsibility to these things. But where is the church? We're quiet. Some are afraid to even make a move. They're afraid to do anything. Afraid, why? Because they understand there is persecution. They understand we're seeing it in a small but incremental way. And it's amazing that we're seeing it. I never thought I would live through these days, but we're living through days that are perilous times. We're living through days that we, we often thought that we went to church maybe at our Grandpa's church, you know, maybe you went to a church that was a, a old-time gospel tent revival preaching church, you know, and they got all shouting and hip, hollering, and, and they would talk about, oh, you got to watch out, and you got to talk about end-time stuff, and we would all think, yeah, but I'll never live that through those days, and look at us here. I mean, I went to the bank the other day, and I was going to withdraw some money, and the lady was like, please, sir, take off your mask. I just want to make sure it's you, and I was like, Wow. So somebody could steal my wallet and withdraw my money, and I wouldn't even know. What a day and age we live in. It's amazing nowadays. It's just amazing times. It's amazing times that we live in where the gospel light needs to be shined brighter, but Christians and churches seem to be getting quieter. We're afraid to speak for the truth. We're afraid to stand out as the church is being scattered. Folks, persecution always starts slowly, always moves quietly, until you surrender totally. That's how persecution works. It's just a little bit by a little bit. Just divide you here, divide you there. Just very, very subtle. You're seeing it. You're seeing where in the end times Jesus said, you're going to have brother against brother. I had somebody text me today. and They said, my family won't let me go to church anymore. And I was like, how sad is that? He was like, just really distraught. He was like, they just... I never thought this day would come where I would have to choose between my family and my church. That's what the Bible was talking about. That brother will be against brother. And you're seeing it. There are certain people that say, well, I'm on this side of the aisle, and I'm on this side of the aisle. Or people that say, I'm for this, or I'm against this. And then the church is all over the place, and everything's political. And you say, what do we do? As Christians, we say, where do we unite? We unite at the foot of the cross, that Jesus saves sinners. That all men must repent of their sin, be born again. That's where we unite. We start there. We don't start with where do we unite on social justice, because there will be many people of opposing views. You say, we don't start with where we stand with human trafficking. We start at the cross. You see, Jesus said, Father, in the last days, he said in his last prayer, Father, may they be one as we are one. Unity in the church. Because what we're getting is a culture that says we narc on somebody next to us. We call somebody else out. Because I better get you before you get me. 
And I see it happening even in the church. We want to look down at somebody that wears a mask or somebody who doesn't wear a mask. Let's not let that creep into our church. You want to wear, wear a mask? Well, praise God, you wear a mask. You don't want to wear a mask? You don't want to wear a mask. Even our own governor this week even said, I can't mandate mask. Our governor on his press release said, I can't mandate it. It's interesting. So I don't want to politicize a mask. So that's why I'll keep one in my Bible, and if I'm talking to you, you want me to wear them, I'll wear it. It's not a big deal. And it shouldn't be a deal, big deal to you if I don't want to wear one. It shouldn't. But isn't that amazing what we've made a big deal? Uh, America was founded on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, it seems like we want to change it, don't we? We want to change it to something else. But understand, let's get back to the fact that this church was being scattered. But then the church realized something. It realized its great command because God scattered them for a reason. Because they were in Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. They were supposed to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost. That was their command originally to go. And here you see the church hadn't scattered. They hadn't gone. And so now God sends Saul and he persecutes the church and they scatter. You see, the church realized it has a command to go everywhere preaching the gospel. You have a command to go everywhere and preach the gospel. You have a command to go and tell everybody. The word uh, gospel there is the word evangelize. It's the same word. To go everywhere and to share Jesus. What a different world we would be if we just focused on Jesus everywhere we went. Just talking to anybody about Jesus. Praying wherever we are. Making any type of an example that we can. This week I was filming and I was at the Children's Discovery Museum filming for our, our uh, online teaching, and uh, Andrew was with me, and somebody ran up to us and said, hey, aren't you guys famous YouTubers? And we just looked at each other, and we were like, yes, our 34 YouTube followers finally think we're famous. We've arrived, man. And we just looked at each other, and we were like, should we just go along with this? And we were like, no, this is for our church. And they lost interest real quick when we said, hey, this is for our church. We want to invite you. We want to tell you about it and things like that. But it's the fact that whenever there's darkness, turn on the light and point people to Jesus. Because now it's going to get them thinking that, oh, that was for church. It's interesting. I wonder what kind of church would do that. I wonder what kind of church they are. We're going to give away backpacks, and that's a small effort to point people to Jesus. We want to make sure we have copies of God's Word. We're going to have a prayer tent there. We're going to have an invitation to church in person. We're going to make sure people know that there's more than just a backpack we want to give them. There's something more. The backpack is a tool that we want to use to point people to Jesus. And just like the early church, we have a command. We have a responsibility to point people to Jesus. So they realized their command, but then also the church refined its convictions. It refined its convictions. Somebody recently, they asked me some questions because I need you to understand something. Even large churches are struggling with the idea of having in-person gatherings, and here's why. Can I tell you why? Because they'll ask me and they'll say, hey, what are you guys running? I said, that's interesting. That's the first question you ask, how many people were running. Because that's a big idol for a lot of pastors. You need to understand that. That attendance is like this big idol who has the biggest church is kind of like the most popular guy in the room, okay? It's like high school. You know, it's not how many Instagram followers you have. It's, it's all about how many people do you have on Sunday. Then you're the cool kid in town, okay? So, so I, and I pushed back. I said, it's interesting that when you're asking about in-person gathering, you're not asking like, hey, what were the biblical conclusions you got there? It was more of just like, hey, is it working? Is it successful? I said, so I'm not going to tell you. And then one person who asked me, and I finally did tell him, I said, yeah, we're running about 100. And he was like, 100? We're running nine. Their church is three times the size of our church. They were like, we can't get above nine. And I was just stepping back, and I was just like, 
hmm, that's interesting. There's a thought behind many people that they're afraid to open up because they haven't refined their convictions. What is your conviction on God's word? You see, I think today we, we look at a pandemic before we look at God's word. If, if you can go to God's word and say, this is why I'm doing such and such. You see, we say we live, this is everything we live for faith and practice. But yet when it comes time to practice it, we go back to our worldview instead of coming back to God's word. So the early church refined its conviction that they said, we've got a conviction about something and they understood something. They said, that's what we're gonna fight for. That's what we're gonna stand for. And they said, we're gonna go everywhere preaching Jesus. They're gonna stand on that conviction. And here's the most powerful thing that happens. Notice if you would, verse number two. It says, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Something you need to understand, anyone in Jewish culture who was executed was not allowed to be mourned for. You weren't allowed to mourn for somebody who had been executed. You weren't allowed to have a public burial. You weren't allowed to take this person. So scholars believe that these actually are not members of the first church that Stephen served that are burying him. You say, then who are these men that are devout men that are carrying Stephen? Many scholars actually believe that these people are the ones that Stephen impacted by his testimony as he was dying, as he said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Many scholars believe those very men who killed Stephen were so convicted by the way that man died that they repented of their sins and they said, we're going to follow his Jesus. Because if he's willing to die for this, the least we could do is live for this. Because the Christians had scattered. They had left already. So who are these people? Many of them believe these are the priests that were throwing stones at him. Which goes back to one of my favorite quotes of all time. It says, people don't recognize a leader until he's gone. And then they build a monument to him with the very stones they threw at him. See, that's the type of character Stephen had. Because he understood his responsibility as a Christian. Much of what happens in our life would change if we understood our responsibility to Jesus. And I'm not trying to make light that it's not going to be difficult. Stephen endured losing his life. And so devout men carried him off. But yet, even in spite, once they took a stand, even the unchurched repented. So we see, first of all, the church, it was scattered, but then we see the church was shattered. There was great lamentation over him. This means that there was many people who were heartbroken. There were many people that were devastated by this. Understand that for many of us, we can look at our lives and it can feel shattered at some times. It can feel difficult. And you say, what is God doing? Often God removes everything so that he becomes everything. You see, God sometimes takes things out of our life that we never wanted him to take because he wants to be everything. And so at this moment, the church is being scattered, and it seems like they're lost. Stephen, they're losing their church members. They're going everywhere. And maybe you feel like the same, that God has shattered you, and he's scattered you, and you're just thinking, God, what is going on? What is happening? What am I going to do? How am I going to make it through this season? Because you just feel like life is shattered. You see, but that's the powerful thing about this whole passage. You see, even though they were scattered, even though they were shattered, notice verse number four, I go back there. It says, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord 
heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. It's amazing that they were shattered and they were scattered, but it, write this down, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. None of these things stopped them. None of, none of the pain that they endured stopped their responsibility. That They said, this is just part of being a Christian. Why are we surprised that when Christians go through suffering, we should be surprised when a Christian isn't suffering? Why are we surprised that bad things happen to good people? That's what Christianity through the ages. Life is difficult. I once worked with a high school principal who said, life is hard, then you die. Real positive. Make that a slogan. Put it up in your office. Life is hard, then you die. And that is life. And many of us as Christians think life should always be easy and life should always be up and life should always be about my happiness and always about my success. But understand, these men and women, they didn't mind. It didn't matter if they were scattered and they were shattered because they knew that they had a mission and they were going to fulfill that mission because that mission was out of responsibility. And you and I have a responsibility as Christians to go into the, all the world and preach the gospel. And that command is not just given to pastors. It's given to each and every one of us. And what a different world this world may be if we would have the same mindset as the first church. Understand, in the Bible, there's a law. It's called the law of first mention. Anytime you see something mentioned first, that's what the continuity, that's what the, we're supposed to follow. It's called the law of first mention. This is what the early church did, so this is what today's church should do. If they did it, we're supposed to do it. That's the way it works. But it, how many churches right now are closing down, silencing their gospel witness, saying, hey, we can't pray in church, but we can protest in the streets? I don't get it. I don't. Where's the prayer? Because prayer is ultimately the greatest thing we can do. But yet many of us look at it as our last resort and not our first priority. We come back to it, and we, we won't step back and say, what is the best thing I can do for my family? What is the best thing I do spiritually right now? And I need to seek God on this and then move on what he tells me to do. But oftentimes, many of us get so hung up, and we say, oh, pastor, I'm scattered, and I'm shattered. So please help me feel better. So please lighten my load. The book of Lamentations has said it's good to bear the burden in your youth, Maybe that's the problem with many of this, is we've tried to remove burdens when we were younger and people made it too easy for us. And now we can't carry the burden. Many times we mistake a blessing as a burden because we don't understand that it still comes with weight. Marriage is a great blessing. But at times, no matter how perfect she is, no matter how perfect he is, there will be a burden to that blessing. There will be that burden that, wait a minute, I just can't stay out as long as I want with the boys anymore. I have to check in with the boss first and get the boss's permission. Because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody care. <laughs> so we come back to the things that, yes, it's a great blessing, but it also has a responsibility. You're a manager, that's a great blessing. But it also has a great burden. Guess what? You're more responsible for the idiot that can't show up on time or can't do the work right. That's your burden to bear. And so while we keep wondering why God would not give us a blessing, but understand he always gives us the strength along with it. And so we're struggling under how to carry the, how to carry the weight. 
And so here we see that this church, they knew they had a responsibility. And they were going to let what was happening to them deter them from that responsibility. You see, they didn't see themselves as just men. They saw themselves as messengers. They saw themselves as messengers. That everywhere I go, I'm taking the message of the gospel, which is the good news. And that's what the world needs to see more than anything today is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus saves sinners. That he saves us from the wrath to come. Many of us don't even know why we actually need to be saved. And it's because nobody's ever preached that there is a hell and God does have his wrath. And so we don't really know why we need to be saved from anything. Because if God is no wrath, and if there's no hell, why do I need to be saved from anything? And you don't know what it is that we were saved from. We don't know what it is that was saved, what was changed in our life. And so for many people, they're just like, well, church, I don't, I don't really need it. I, I'm, I'm good without it. Oh, God, I can take it or leave it. I can come back whenever I want to. You see, they saw there was a responsibility. How do you see yourself? You see, these people said, wherever I go, I've got this responsibility. Whatever I've got to do, I'm going to take this message with me. And this message has transforming power. They go into the city of Samaria, and with one accord, the entire city is being converted. The entire city. Why? Because one man by the name of Philip went to the city. One person brought an accidental awakening to the gospel. So don't tell me that God can't use one person and use them in a powerful way if they would just be a messenger. You can change your family. You can change your workplace. You can change your community. And yes, one person can change a city. That's what Philip did. He changed an entire city. God used him to change an entire city because of how he saw himself. And he saw the gospel spreading like wildfire. This past week on Monday, I was supposed to drive to Fresno. And it's an easy drive. It's two and a half hours. You know, you get on the 101 to 152 to the 99. And there, you're in Fresno, okay? You're just in uh, uh, raising capital of the world. And two and a half hours, not a problem. And so we get on the road at 11. Get to the top of, of uh, just uh, coming over the Pacheco Pass, and all of a sudden it's all blocked, and all the cars are just parked there because there's a big fire, and they shut down the 152, nine miles outside of Los Banos. So we're just all stuck there. And he said the fire wasn't bad, except for somebody had a tractor-trailer truck filled with hay that was loaded too high, and it fell over and made the fire worse. I was like, ha, wonderful. So uh, Google Maps, delightful Google Maps, okay? If you invented Google Maps, uh, please see me after the church service. I have some words for you. It said, let's reroute you to the 25. I didn't know this road existed, the 25. This is what I call a mountain goat path, okay? This is not a road, folks. And so I'm, Google reroutes me. And by the time I get over, and this is through the pinnacles. If any of you have been over there, you know exactly where this is at. So I'm on this little narrow road, and uh, uh, I'm just driving along. The whole time, Kane's going, scary, scary, scary. He didn't like the road. I'm telling you, it's not a good road. And we're driving on this road, and I'm just like, oh, i got to get to Fresno. Let's go. And so we were driving. All of a sudden, we get to the very top of that, and guess what? The fire that had crossed the 152 had already moved to the 25 and shut down the 25. So now I'm three hours into a drive that should have been done in two and a half. And so my wife's like, well, looks like we're going home. And I said, not on your chance. Not on your life. I said, the 58, let's go that way. So I drove from the 25 all the way to the 58. It took me seven hours, over seven hours to get to Fresno. Some of you are like, you're crazy. I don't love Fresno. I don't know why I did it. I just wanted to say that I did it. But the thing is interesting is the fact that how fast that fire could travel. 
How fast can the gospel travel? It's amazing how fast gossip can travel. It's amazing how fast a lie can travel. It's amazing how other things can spread, but yet the gospel seems to be moving so slow. And especially right now with so many people hurting, you would think that this good news would be the greatest thing in the world. You would think that we would see a great sweeping revival. You would see, uh, call me weird, but as soon as this thing was hitting, I was like, man, this is going to be a great opportunity for the church. Because when people are going through trials and transitions, they are the most open to God. I lived through 9-11. I saw that the churches were just flooded with people. We saw as everybody gathered on the steps of the courthouse and saying, God bless America, and they prayed after 9-1-1. Whether you, it didn't matter what side of the aisle you were on. They all locked arms. They all prayed. They all sang. All of them. It didn't matter red or blue, independent. It didn't matter. And here we can see that there's a moment. I was so excited, but then I started to hear the reports of churches who were just, just social gospel. That's all we're going to do. I'm thinking people don't need a social gospel. They just need the gospel. Just give them that. Just give them the best news that can change their eternal destiny that'll change their thinking, that'll change the way they look at another human being, another man or a woman. It'll change the way we respect one another. It'll change the way we talk to one another. You see, but too often we don't see that we have a responsibility. We see ourselves as somebody who's running for our safety. They weren't just running to a new city saying, oh, well, Silicon Valley's, oh, I don't like how everybody votes there. I don't like the taxes. I don't like the high prices. I'm moving to Arizona. I'm moving to Austin, Texas. I'm getting out of Dodge. No, they were, they were fleeing, but they were taking the gospel with them everywhere they went. And the gospel message began to spread. You see, suffering didn't slow the gospel. You see, the more they were persecuted, the more that they preached. You see, Philip did signs and wonders. Great things happened. And let me wrap up with this, that there was great joy in the city. You know why there was great joy in the city? And it's because people realize that we receive salvation. We're seeing great joy in the city, not just because our sick are healed and the lame can walk. We're seeing great joy in the city because people are saved and they're converted. They're on their way to heaven and not hell. That is the great thing that happens when the gospel comes into our lives. It's the good news, the good news that all men are sinners and Jesus is a loving Savior who died on the cross for their sins, that if anyone will repent, they can come to the Father and the Father will forgive him, that the blood has been paid, the ultimate penalty has been paid. And that is the good news of the gospel and yet we're hiding this gospel. We're not getting it to the people that need it. And understand something, if Satan can't kill the church, he'll try to copy the church. Because that's what he tried to do. Kill it first. I'm going to send Saul to kill it. He said, what do you mean copy it? Would you read verse number 9? And there was a certain man called Simon, which beforehand in the same city used sorcery, bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. So if Satan can't kill the church, he'll copy it. So what are you saying, pastor? I'm saying that there are some churches today that aren't, God's church, they're Satan's, they're counterfeit. Let me ask you a question, true or false? You can answer out loud, you can answer quietly. Does Satan hate religion? False. He uses it all day long. He loves religion. He loves religion. He would love to give something that looks like the real thing. Because if he can't kill the church, he's going to copy it. 
and he's going to try to lead as many Christians astray as he possibly can. And I try to listen to pastors preaching, and I listened to a pastor preach this week, and he started to just rattle off book after book after book, and he tried to say what that book was preaching about, and he was saying things that I was like, and I looked over at my wife, and I said, that's so funny, because I just studied those minor prophet books, and they don't say a thing of what he just said they said. And I was just grieved. I was grieved, because he was taking God's word, and he was just making it say what he wanted it to say. And so that, we know, is what Satan does. He's, he's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And he's deceiving people. Many people are deceived. Many people are being led astray. And many people are so deceived and they're so blinded. And it's distancing themselves from what God wants to do in their life. And many of them are distant now from God. Why? Because a person like Simon has come in. You see, God wants the supernatural, not the superficial. And the hold of the devil can only be broken by the hope of the gospel. You say, what happened? We see at the end of this passage, we see that Peter and John go down. Notice if you would, verse number 18. And when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God can be purchased with money. How many people go to church for what they can get and not what they can give? What did he want? He just wanted the gift. Why? Because he just wants to be important. He just wants to make it about himself. So this is what I call a Christian counterfeit. And Peter goes on to say, verse 21, You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps that the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Notice again, he's not repentant because he knows he's done wrong. He's just saying, hey, make sure nothing bad happens to me. This is not a true change of heart. This is not a true conversion. I wonder how many people have infiltrated the church with this type of a mindset. You know how to act like a Christian, but you're not truly seeking God. You just want to seek what God can give you. And we have churches by the thousands that this is what they preach, a message to just make you feel good, a message that is just all about you and not about your responsibility. It's all about your rights. But we humble ourselves before God and we admit the fact that, wait a minute, God, you, your word gives me a responsibility. Am I carrying out that responsibility? Because when I carry out that responsibility, there's a joy. You ever gone and done something very hard and very difficult and then you get done with it and you step back with a sense of satisfaction and a sense of joy thinking, wow, I didn't know if I could do that and I made it through. That was difficult. That was hard. That took everything that I had, but God was with me the whole way. And look, we made it through that. You see, we often come to God with these false ideas that God is a magic genie that whenever we want something, we just kind of rub them. God, give me what, whatever I want. 
And the need of the church is once again to see that we have this responsibility. I love what the prophet Joel 2, 12 says. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he will relent from doing harm. He says, rend your heart, not your garments. Don't do something fake. Make sure it's real that your heart is soft towards me. He went on in Matthew 15, verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Where is our heart in relation to God? You see, I think too often we come to God and we just think that God can't see where our heart really is. That he doesn't see the idols that we're holding back in our heart. He doesn't see that there are things that we've held above God. We've exalted above him. We've made it all about ourselves. We've dethroned God and we've sat on his throne. I'm here to tell you, God doesn't have a duplex for a throne. You don't get to sit there too. He's our Lord. He's our God. And he's the one we submit to and say, God, I need your help in this situation. God, I'm feeling scattered. I'm feeling shattered. And Lord, I know I need to have an attitude that none of this matters for the glory of God and the excellency that is yours. And for the, just like you, Jesus, you, you despised the cross and you, you, you went on and you still went no matter what and you endured the shame. God, I know I need to have that attitude. So Father, help me in this moment. But instead, we come to God with this attitude that he owes us that everything in life has to be perfect. When it's not perfect, then all of a sudden we're, we're like, all right, God, if you don't fix it, then guess what? I may go somewhere else. I may, I may stop following you. See how you like it. Put you in a timeout, God. I think God looks down at us, and I just think he doesn't smirk, doesn't laugh. I think it's just, you ever have a child or somebody close to you, and you're just like, they just don't understand. They just don't know. And that's the attitude too often we can take towards God. But right now, we need to step back and say, Lord, no matter what I'm going through, none of it matters. Because I want to focus on you, God. And God, you'll give me the right heart towards these things. Because in this passage, you see that they went through something terrible. But yet they kept their eyes focused on God. And in this difficult season... The best thing we can do is keep our eyes on the Lord. Just say, God, my eyes are on you through all of this. Through God, because I don't know how this is going to turn out, so I've got to keep my eyes fixed on you. Because this, Lord, if, this, if you're not in this, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so we need to have eyes focused on God so that we say, Lord, it's your will, what you want done. So today you may be feeling like your life is shattered into a million of little pieces and scattered. But I'm here to say, we can have an attitude that we say, you know what, it's going to be okay. Because I know that God is good. I know that God will ultimately have his will be done. And as a church, we need to have that attitude. As a church, we need to once again look at our responsibility and say, all right, Lord, have I been faithful to the responsibility that you've given me? Have I been faithful to what you've called me to? Or have I gotten lost on side tangents? Have I got distracted from sharing the gospel everywhere I go with telling people about Jesus, the greatest thing we can do, that everywhere we go, it's just constantly just pointing people to Jesus. It's constantly letting people know that there is hope because Satan's got a chokehold on people's lives. 
And the only thing that breaks that hold is the hope of Jesus Christ. And yet too often, church, we can lose sight of that. I think somebody reached out to me recently and they asked me something and I was like, look, honestly, I can't do anything for you. Only Jesus can. I could pray for you. But honestly, the one that you need the most is Jesus, but it's the one you're running from. The one person that can change your life, the one that can meet the desires of your heart, the one that can fulfill it is the one person you're avoiding. Isn't that amazing? It's like when you have that to-do list and you're avoiding it, so you do everything else to try and avoid that one thing on your to-do list. And I think we do everything but Jesus. I'll go to life group. I'll go to growth group. I'll get baptized. I'll buy a new Bible. I'll go get a journal. I'll invite somebody to church. But I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to give this thing up. And we just hold on. And God's like, would you just give this thing up to me? When I was 14 years old, I thought I was saved. I was baptized at four years old in the church in Morgan Hill. So I just assumed I was saved. I didn't realize till later on that I just wanted to get baptized just because everybody else is doing it. Might as well. You got a cool little certificate. Got to stand in front of the church. So we got a little certificate that says I was baptized at Valley Baptist Church. Name has since changed. The building has been sold. And now it's like a Buddhist temple. <laughs> I don't want to know what they do in the baptistry. But then when I was 14, my brother came back from a camp and uh, he told the family I got saved. Not me, he got saved. And I was like, man, wow, Josh is like perfect. He's like such a good kid, like never does anything wrong. Me, on the other hand, I woke up every single day just thinking, what am I going to do today to get in trouble? That was just a thought that was on my mind every single day. Growing up, I just, every day I got a spanking. There wasn't a day that I can remember growing up where I wasn't getting spanked. It was just a normal thing. It was just like, yep, today's the day for another good spanking, all right? And it was just normal. And then when Josh came home from camp and I see that he's now telling everybody he got saved, and I was like, man, this kid's perfect. And when the power goes out in Fresno, we light the room with his halo. I mean, he's just a, a really, really good kid. And then all of a sudden, I just remember feeling overwhelming conviction. I knew that I had been pretending at 14. Man, I would go to bed at night and get up in the middle of the night just knowing that I was under deep conviction, that I was lost and I didn't know Jesus. And me pretending like I was saved would not make hell less hot. You pretending like everything was okay is not gonna solve the problem. You can't wish it away. You can't hope it away. You've got to come to Jesus and just say, all right, Lord, I've been running. So I'm just coming to you. The disciples, that was what they pointed the church to. Everywhere they went, just make it about Jesus. Today in our political climate, it's stressful. Anybody you talk to can turn it into an argument just like that, wherever you are. But just point them to Jesus. So at least if they get offended, they get upset. It was about Jesus. It's like, yeah, I accept them. I talk about Jesus a lot. He's kind of like my best friend. Can we all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Gracious Heavenly Father, you know the desires and needs and what everyone's going through. Father, you know that the struggle that we deal with, you know how 
difficult life can be. You know how we can fall and we can run, but you know how we need to just come back to you. How we just need to kneel before you, humble ourselves, and get things right with you, restore the relationship with you. Because when we get that relationship right with you, everything else falls into place. And Lord, we can, we can withstand the shattering and scattering of life. And we'll understand that it doesn't matter. So Father, would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to be like you? Would you help us to seek you? Father, we need you. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We want to open up the altar as the worship team plays a final song and maybe there's something you need to deal with God and you say I'm going to come down I'm going to kneel down on an old fashioned altar and I'm just going to pray and I'm going to seek God and get some things right we want to open up to you during this time and just open up you can kneel there in your seat make an altar there in your seat but let's right now take some time we don't have to rush through this time we just pray and we can just seek God so right now let's take a moment we hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.